is Melissa Hale Spencer, the editor of the Altamont Enterprise, and I'm really excited to have here with me this morning Al Breisch. I wrote a story this week in the newspaper about his new book, The Snake and the Salamander, and I filled up my whole notebook with notes, <laughs> and he had more to say about these fascinating creatures, so we invited him in, and welcome to the Enterprise Podcast. Well, thank you, Melissa. It's nice to be here. Well, great. I just thought we'd start with a little bit um, about your background, because I know for 26 years, tell us what you did for 26 years with the state. Uh, for 26 years, I was the amphibian and reptile specialist for the Endangered Species Unit at New York State Department of Environmental Conservation. And uh, in that position, I was responsible for the management and recovery of any species listed as endangered or any amphibian or reptile species that was listed as endangered in New York State. Um, I was also not quite related, but I was the head of the federal recovery team for the federally uh, threatened Chittenango ovate amber snail. Oh, that's something I didn't know. (laughs) Tell us about that snail. Well, when it was first listed, uh, the only known population was outside of Syracuse, New York, in a state park, Chittenango State Park. And the thought was that it was more widely distributed, that that there had been previous reports as far south as North Carolina and as far north as Quebec. Uh, Subsequent studies showed that those weren't the same snail at all. And it turns out the only place in the world they occur are at the base of the falls at Chittenango Falls State Park. And the, their entire range is an area smaller than, say, the average living room. So is this snail still in danger? Of- it, when I was working on it, it was listed as threatened. I think they've now upgraded it to endangered. But we would go out and do annual surveys on it. Uh, we developed a method for marking snails that are less than one inch in length. Well, when we talked last week, you told me about marking turtles, which I could understand. You showed me on their shell, um, like a code system you would use. Right. But how, how the heck do you mark a snail? We started by using fingernail polish. So you go out in week one, and every snail you find... You mark with a tiny dot of a particular color of fingernail polish. You go out the next week, and when you survey for them, every snail you find, whether it's already marked or not, you put a different color on it. And you continue this over a certain number of times, and then you can apply mathematical formulas to come up with a population estimate of how big it is. So what can you do, and this could just serve as a an example of all the species that are in danger. I mean, what what can you do to help one tiny living room-sized area keep its unique species? Well, one of the things we were looking at is once we identified the snails and very precisely identified the entire uh, length and width of their habitat, And in characterizing that habitat, then we thought we could take those parameters and go look at other similar habitats and see if they were similar enough that maybe the snail could have survived there. 
Um, after that first couple of years using fingernail polish, we decided that didn't give us accurate enough information because all we knew is it, it was caught in week one, week two, week three. Then we found that there's these tiny little tags that beekeepers use to mark the queen bee. And so we used those little tiny tags and applied them to our snails. So then we could identify an individual snail, not just what week we caught it. So it's like there are no set methods for these things. You had to kind of develop as you went along what would work. So were you able to find other habitats that were close enough to the bottom of the falls in Shenango Park? We did not. No. There, uh, so. uh, over the years, 20 to 30 maybe other waterfall areas were searched, some in that same drainage, some in other drainages, and we never found anything similar to it. So. The other technique we developed while working on this snail was, uh, it's an endangered species, and you know, a lot of work now is done through genetics. But with a known population of only three to 500 snails worldwide at this one location, we certainly didn't want to sacrifice any of them in order to get genetic material for testing them. So working with a lab uh, operated by the U U.S. Geological Survey in West Virginia, we worked on a technique where we put the snails on essentially what was treated filter paper, and we let them walk around on it for about a minute or two, we put them back in the habitat, and then we took that filter paper and had that analyzed. And they and were there was DNA. On there was that enough filter. DNA okay. left from the snail slime that we could uh, get a good picture of the genetics of the animal. And then they compared that to other closely related snails, and they determined this was indeed a very unique species. It occurs nowhere else. Um, Fascinating. It is. Well, so just if you could speak in general terms, why why should people care about any individual species? And when we talked, you you named one um, turtle that you had helped um, sort of reestablish itself. Um, and the name is escaping bog, the bog. The bog. Bog. I got turtle. it mixed up with bog. Yes. I'm so sorry because it's an eating turtle, and it's no, no. It, it's, it's a very small turtle. It's always been uh, uncommon. Okay. But because it was so small and cute, it was highly prized in the pet trade. Oh, that was it. Okay. Yes. But so why should people care about a species disappearing from the face of the earth? What, why does it matter? Well, because each one is unique and we really haven't gotten to the point where we understand that uniqueness. There are a lot of people, and pharmaceutical companies in particular, invest millions of dollars searching for unique species. They do a lot of it in the tropics, thinking that there may be a chemical in that species that will help us fight a disease. And there's a lot of uh, observations where using an animal model has helped us develop a treatment for human diseases or livestock diseases. So there can be a direct human upside to there, Oh, absolutely. But another thing you told me about, which I found fascinating, 
and excuse me for trying to head the conversation in this direction, but I actually, I had called, Al had called me in the fall because he found a 40-year-old story I had written on a rattlesnake bite in the Adirondacks for the Lake Plaza News, and he was researching the whole breadth of these rattlesnakes and tell us a little about that research, and then I'm going to ask the same question I asked of you then because I just was fascinated with the answer, which is why would anybody care about a poisonous rattlesnake? Go ahead. All right. <laughs> we'll jump into a different poisonous rattlesnake. Okay. Some of the very earliest, back in the 1800s, uh, research on venom in the Massasauga rattlesnake, that's one that also occurs in New York, but only at two locations, But out in the Midwest, they were looking at that venom and whether it could be used to actually develop treatment for people that had a snake bite. And the techniques they used in developing that have been applied to developing other vaccinations for other diseases. So it's the basic science behind developing this knowledge that then can be applied to other organisms, other diseases, whatever. Uh, My interest in the timber rattlesnake, it's listed as a threatened species in New York. It's listed as either endangered or threatened in every state in New England, and then in a number of other states throughout its range. It occurs in 30 to 32 states. It used to occur up in Quebec and Ontario. It's no longer there. Uh, Around 1995, we held a symposium in North Carolina uh, on the timber rattlesnake, and we had researchers from all over, everybody doing work on it. And at the end of that, we came to the conclusion that the timber rattlesnake populations were in such poor shape in New England and upstate New York that maybe... Just maybe it warranted being listed on the federal list of threatened species, just for that subpopulation, not the entire species. So a group of us began working on this, what we called the Conservation Action Plan, focusing on that area initially. But as we developed it and we started seeing inconsistencies of how different uh, agencies in different states were treating the timber rattlesnake, we decided we should expand it and include the entire range of the timber rattlesnake. And that range goes from Quebec, you said, down to Florida and Texas and as far west as Minnesota. Minnesota, yes. And so then the question is, you were saying in Ontario they were thinking of reintroducing it. There there are, yeah. And why? Why would anyone want to reintroduce a poisonous snake? Well, first off... They're not poisonous. Okay, good. Tell me about that. They're venomous. Venomous, okay. Um, And the the, uh, phrases aren't used consistently by a lot of people. Okay. But if it's venomous, it means it's capable of injecting you with something that is going to cause you harm, whether you're the prey item or a larger animal like humans trying to do something to the animal. Poisonous implies that if you eat it, you'll get sick. So some things, if you eat, you'll get sick, and they're poisonous. But if it can put something into your blood system, like a bee sting, that's venom, or a rattlesnake bite, that's venom. 
So that's how well, we that's differentiate. Good. I like a precision <laughs> of language. But the answer that I loved was you had this idea that naturalists think an entire ecosystem is important. Yes. Just talk a little about right. that. So the timber rattlesnake, its name, timber rattlesnake, implies that it lives in forested environments. And that's pretty much true. They're, they're always associated with woodlands of some area, but they will venture out into open meadows, edges of wetlands, etc. They swim. They swim. You've probably heard reports. They swim across Lake George. They, uh, they are frequently found out on some of the islands up in the Narrows above Bolton Landing. So there's something that, it's a timber forested animal, but it does live at other places. Then I forgot what the rest but, of your well, question was. It was, was just <laughs> this idea that an ecosystem itself <laughs> is important. Okay, right. And I just... I love that idea because as human beings, we tend to be so centered on our own needs. And that's great if, uh, you know, some, uh, some animal could help cure a human illness. But it just seems like you were more aware of something separate from any human need that we don't even necessarily understand all of the ecosystem itself. Yes. Yes, and, and as I was saying, the timber rattlesnake associated with the forested areas, that's what people envision the Northeast to be, forested habitat, as opposed to the western deserts or the plains or anything like that. It's forested from Florida to Maine, all the way up through Canada. Uh, and if you look at the suite of organisms that's in there, the, the entire array of organisms, whether they're plants or animals, invertebrates, vertebrates, whatever... Uh, they're interconnected in many ways that we don't understand. So the timber rattlesnake is considered kind of an apex predator. It eats a lot of things smaller than it. And that's everything from smaller rabbits and squirrels and mice and voles, chipmunks and all those kind of things. And in turn, especially when it's young, other things eat timber rattlesnakes. So if you lose them, you lose that key point in the middle in all those predator-prey relationships, as I say, some of these we still don't understand. We start looking at it closer and we say, okay, so they eat a lot of mice. What else do we know about mice? Mice eat a lot of things that are of value to humans. They damage our crops. They damage our fruit trees. Uh, they carry ticks. They carry hantavirus. They carry a number of things. So if we have predators that are eating them, and it's not just timber rattlesnakes, but any of the predators, foxes, timber rattlesnakes, uh, coyotes, whatever, we need those organisms in the system to keep it working well. And when we start losing this one, we say, well, that didn't really affect it too much. Well, then we lose another one. Well, that didn't affect it a heck of a lot, but I see the impact now. At some point, it collapses. And we've seen that happen a number of times. Um, I don't know if you've heard the story about returning wolves to Yellowstone. No, tell us about that. Well, the wolves had been gone from Yellowstone for decades. And somebody thought, well, here's a predator that preys on primarily the larger ungulates, the deer and the moose and whatever. Let's bring them back. And maybe that'll help us keep the deer in balance. 
because the deer were deforesting areas. They were uh, such overpopulated populations that some of the vegetation was really suffering. Well, the, the wolves came back and they did start preying on these uh, elk and deer. So they were reintroduced from somewhere else, just right. the same way you tried to get the chitinangle right. snail in another area, but nothing matched. You bring but it. You brought it. It was brought it, back from somewhere. Bring it back where you think there is good habitat, where they're going to survive. And then the important thing is you have to be able to do follow-up studies to show the impact that you've just done. Well, it turns out they had a tremendous impact on the elk, but they also had a tremendous unexpected impact on the vegetation. The streams where the elk had completely devegetated stream banks and things like that and were prone to erosion, they, those stream banks started to recover. And the streams became healthy. That's not something anybody really expected. They weren't thinking that many links down the, the food chain as to how the wolf would actually change the behavior of the streams. Huh. So the idea of this great western wilderness, I just finished reading a book set in the mid-1800s, we're now having to kind of create that because we destroyed it and we're re reinventing it and looking yes. at the ways that it functions. That, that was a great example. Thank you. Yes. Um, I wonder, too, if it would be a good idea just to kind of page through your book and have you talk about some of these species, because on each page, I learned things I didn't know. At the end of the table, we have Marcello Yaya, who's the co-publisher and running the tech end of things, and he had this story from when he was a little boy, and he found a blue frog, and he brought it into school, and it was a sensation. And I put that green frog on our front page because you explain in the book how it is he could have found a blue frog. Yes. Can you just tell us about that? Just yeah, and I've seen a number of and people who find them send me photographs of them saying, I found a blue frog. Is this something new? Well, it's not new. Uh, the green frog is not green. The green color that we see in many of these organisms is not the color we're seeing. We all know that green is a mix of yellow and blue. And the green frog pigment and the green uh, smooth green snake pigment is really a mix of those yellow and blue pigment, pigments. Now, if there's a mutation going on, and that happens quite frequently, where the yellow pigment isn't produced in a portion of the frog's body, it ends up looking yellow. Rather, or, I mean, if the yellow's not produced, it ends up looking blue. blue yeah. And the same way, if the blue pigment isn't being produced, it looks yellow. So you get frogs that sometimes look very, very baby blue, very differently colored, and just really interesting things. Yeah, and another one that interested me, you said it was a very unturtle turtle in your book. It was the spiny... Spiny soft, soft shell. shell. Yeah. Right. Because you said it had been clocked traveling at 15 miles an hour. I mean, tell us a little about that. Right. If, um, if you look at a turtle, everybody knows a turtle is an animal with a hard shell that it retreats into to avoid uh, predation or when it's threatened. Well, if we look at the spiny soft shell, just the name soft shell, 
its shell is not hard, it's leathery. And actually, one of the early ones I saw, I was looking through my spotting scope out in one of the bays on Lake Ontario, and I saw a map turtle basking. And I said, that looks like it's basking on an inner tube. But when I looked closer, I saw that that inner tube was actually just the soft shell of a spiny soft shell that was drooped kind of over the log it was sitting on. And the map turtle was sitting on top of the spiny soft shell. And then I could see the pointed snout of the soft shell out in front. So it just, that alone makes it very unturtle-like. The other thing we think of is, for turtles is they're kind of slow. Well, these turtles still have to go up on land and nest. You know, they can protect themselves fairly well when they're out in the water. But when they get up on the shore to nest, they're fairly vulnerable to predation or disturbance. So the females get up there, they nest, they always face, while they're actually laying their eggs, they always face the water. And if there's some disturbance, they abandon that nest and they head back to the water. Well, they don't waddle back to the water, they run. And 15 miles an hour, that's about as fast as a human can run. So you put him up against a sprinter, you know, it's a pretty good race. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, every page of this book has, um, with this species, there's a beautiful illustration by Matt Patterson that does for reptiles and amphibians what Audubon did for birds. It puts it in a natural setting and is original artwork, but very detailed so you can look at identifying things but the book does more than that it tell us about how you organize the book well when matt and i were first starting it uh he, he had asked me to write some text to go along with his illustrations so we began to talk about well what species do we want to put in there and of course he wanted species that represented the is complete a range of the extraordinary colors that these animals have because they are there's blues there's greens there's reds there's oranges yeah it's actually shocking when you page through if you're someone that was ill-informed like i was <laughs> and you think you know snakes are brown and frogs are green and it's not true yeah. they're just all kinds of colors but go ahead so but then he also wanted to include all the shapes so you know the lizards and the snakes and different shapes of frogs and the different details on their bodies you know like uh, the uh, tree frogs with the big toe pads other frogs with small toe pads the different types of vocal sacs that species have and i said yeah this is the kind of thing we want to do so we started making a list of all the species we wanted then we added some more and originally i guess we started talking about we do new york and new england but i said you know uh, the further south we go, without going too far south, we start picking up some even more colorful snakes and some, some more interesting life history type things. So we did extend it all the way to Virginia, uh, which is a kind of a broad definition of the Northeast, but we like it. <laughs> <laughs> and you got more color. <clears throat> and I said, well, and if we're going to do this, I don't want a... Uh, field guide type illustration which is usually just the organism sitting there I said we need to put it on uh, the habitat that you'll typically find the animal in well 
Matt thought that was a great idea. He wanted to do that, I think, anyhow. The, uh, so each one of these is set in a little microhabitat of where you might actually find the species. Yes, I'm open to the page of the northern scarlet snake who is by a pine cone on pine needles. Yes. So, yeah. And then um, we thought, well, most field guides, all field guides, are uh, developed that you go through the frogs, you go through the salamanders, the turtles, the snakes, the lizards. Said. So, since we're doing it this way, we're trying to highlight the species in its habitat. Let's group the species by habitat. So I came up with a list of nine, I think, typical broad categories of habitat that we find in these northeastern states. And then we started assigning the species which one would be typical of that. Recognizing that uh, species don't spend their entire life in one habitat type. Just like I said, the timber rattlesnake is a forest snake, so it would be found in the deciduous uh, uh, forest habitat types, but it also goes out into those uh, grassland areas, uh, which includes farmland type things. Animals that use vernal pools, like the ambistomid salamander. Which, by the way, in this book, he calls wicked big puddles. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. The animals that use the wicked big puddles <laughs> also use the surrounding forests or the surrounding grasslands. So there's a table in the back that cross-references all those different habitat uses that each of these species might be found in. So it gives you a better idea where to go look. Yes, a very precise idea. It's a pages of charts that um, they tell you that with little black dots. But it does give you, because of the way it's organized, for example, that whole idea of an ecosystem that you were talking about earlier. If you look at bogs, you will find in the illustrations the sorts of plants that are in a bog along with the animals that are there. And it, it just... It just makes for fascinating reading. No, oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> because you interlace it, not just with scientific... It's not dry at all the way it's written. It's very vivid prose. But in addition to the sort of scientific descriptions are personal reminiscences and memories of having seen these animals with certain professors or people. And um, it just gives you a sense of the author as a scientist who's an explorer as opposed to just kind of dry prose. So maybe that could segue into a little bit about talking about you and how you became interested in this field. And also, if you could tell, because we have a lot of local listeners, people about where you live and the the natural setting. All right. Um well, I got into it as an undergraduate. Actually, when I first went to college, like many students, not really quite sure what you're going to do. And I actually started out in an engineering program. Go move. And it <laughs> didn't take long with the physics classes <laughs> to realize that maybe I wanted to be somewhere else. Uh, so I switched into a, a botany major. And that's what I got my undergraduate degree at at Penn State. Uh, always enjoyed being outdoors. I was a scout from, you know, Cub Scout, Boy Scout, Explorer Scout. We were always out in the woods. We did canoe trips every summer, did the camping in the winter, all, all the great things that scouts were doing back then. I hope they still are. Uh, 
So being in botany was getting me closer to that, but it still didn't give me a a real profession. So I went into graduate school, and I came to New York to uh, go to graduate school at SUNY Albany uh, because it was close to the Adirondacks. And I was offered an assistantship to work on a study of the vegetation of Whiteface Mountain. So that was doubly nice, not just near it, but that's where I could spend my entire summer for several years uh, working up there. And that, because I was taking not just botany and plant ecology courses, but as variety of field-type courses as I could, I was exposed to all these other things. And after many years of doing a lot of different things, I ended up at DEC. Uh, and when a job came up that I could work on amphibians and reptiles, I jumped at it because I thought that is a group I've always liked. I'd had some professional field work involved with amphibians in Jamaica, West Indies. Uh, so that's where I ended up for the majority of my professional career. And his house is right at the base of the Helderberg Escarpment, this beautiful bowl of space, and across the street is... Across the street is Vly Swamp, which extends, uh, begins not far off of Route 156, but it extends all the way through there. It borders Indian Ladder Farms. It goes down uh, along Martin Road, all the way to the Cooperative Extension, then it turns south and goes back towards the village of Oresville. So it's a huge wetland complex. And that was a wetland complex that was very important to a scientist, Sherman Bishop, back in the 1920s and 30s, where he did some of the first real uh, natural history observations of salamanders in New York. He was one of the first people who identified Uh, nests of many of these species, where they laid their eggs, how long it took the larvae to mature. Now we think of amphibians, they go into the water, they lay eggs, they hatch out as larvae or tadpoles, whichever term you want to use. They swim around for a while and crawl out. Well, for how long are they in there? Well, it turns out some of those animals may only be in there for a few weeks. Others like the spring salamander, may take four years or more as an aquatic larvae before it turns into the landform. And Sherman Bishop was the first to identify that, and Vly Swamp was one of his chief study areas. He lived in Albany, so Vly Swamp was an easy place. And it's a place where you go now yourself. And I've been going there since uh, the early 1980s. Did Uh, you move there because of the swamp? Well, partly because of the swamp, uh, partly because I knew a gentleman who owned some land, and I called him up and asked if he wanted to sell any, one of the old professors at Albany State. And uh, he agreed to subdivide his land and sell us uh, 13 acres. And also because it was next to the Helderberg Workshop, which I've been involved with since 1977. So you teach classes there? Not anymore. I, I, I started out teaching classes. I've taught a few in more recent years, but... It only took me a couple of years. I went from science teacher to science chairman to summer chairman to member of the board, uh, chairman of the board. You know, I'm, now I'm vice chairman of the board. <laughs> That's a great program, too. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I thought was just 
charming in this book. It it's dedicated to your daughters, and you describe them in the dedication as being your earliest field companions. And I just thought that was so wonderful. And then you told me a little about what they're doing now, and it just seemed like they had followed in your footsteps. So I don't know if you want to just talk a little about your family as we conclude, because we're kind of up on our half hour. All right, all right. Yes, and actually, uh, my older daughter, Ariana, was born the first summer that I taught at the Hellebirk Workshop. So that was kind of fun. (laughs) And so she's actually made her first visit to the Hildeberg workshop when she was a week old. Oh, my goodness. They come to open house that (laughs) Thursday night. Oh, wow. Uh, And then my second daughter, uh, Kirsten, she also uh, followed my natural history bent. And uh, they're both great outdoors people, and they're turning my grandkids into great outdoors people, too. Wow. Well, that is an inspiration. And I thank you so much for coming. And um, I thank you for writing this book. Okay. Thank you, Melissa.